This morning, what we're going to be talking about is actually something that that song expresses. And I'm really actually just kind of struck as I was singing that song. Because what we're going to be talking here this morning as we study the book of Acts actually is about the people of God taking a stand for Jesus. And the consequences and the ramifications of that. See, as I, as I was singing along with you, it's it just kind of one of those Holy Spirit moments. When we sing that song, and I stand, it's not just a physical posture, but kind of the Spirit of God, kind of this thing to me. My heart this morning is, when you live your life missionally for Jesus, when you live your life as a witness for Christ, you will be forced by our culture and the people around us to take a stand. Abandoning it all for Christ or looking just like the rest of the world. And so I guess the question that's asked even as I sing that song and we're going to read this passage is, is are you taking a stand in such a way that the world around you has noticed? Taking a stand with your life, with, with, your, with your verbal witness. What kind of a stand are you taking in such a way that the world is, is, is noticing, you know? Let's go ahead and, and look at today's passage, shall we? Okay. Well, we're studying the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5. Um, boy, it, I'm going to read a really, really long passage here this morning because we're going to come back to this sucker uh, this week and next week. Actually, I could spend like a month on this passage. Uh, I just like going real slow. And then I have the rest of our staff go fast. So we'll kind of combine both and we'll be done with Acts in two years, okay? Um, but uh, but, but I, I, even though I'm only going to be focusing on like two, three verses, I need to give you the context. So here we go. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Ananias and Sapphira drop dead. We pick up the story in verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Verse 17, then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said. How does that word again? Um, repeat. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. And again, I wasn't planning to share this, but it just kind of... Go stand in the temple courts. Go stand in the midst of the the political power system that's opposed to the message of Christ. Take a stand publicly. Be about Jesus publicly. And tell the people the full message in life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone said, look, the men you are uh, put in jail are standing in the temple court teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. So having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Well, look, we gave you orders not to teach in this name. He said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. We'll stop right there. This is the word of the Lord. Um, 
Chapters four and five really uh, is about one thing and something is introduced in the book of Acts that hasn't been introduced yet. That'll be a constant theme and it's a theme of persecution. For the first time, the apostles and believers are being persecuted for their faith. They've been jailed and now they're being threatened with, their, with the loss of their goods and even their lives. And how do they respond how do they respond to face of persecution? You notice what they said. We must obey God rather than men. We're not going to stop talking about him. We will do this. Where did they get such boldness? Why aren't we more like them? Where did they get such courage? Why aren't, me, why aren't we more courageous? Where did they get such fearless, heroic, confident boldness that many of us lack? Um, we know and historically, that for the first two, three hundred years of the Christian church, there were numerous persecutions. Christianity, for over a hundred years before Constantine declared Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire, was illegal to be a Christian. So if you were known to be a Christian, you were persecuted. And it included all the way from having your co- goods confiscated, uh, being, being ostracized, to being killed. But the amazing thing about Christianity during this time, when you read church history, is that the reason why the Christianity grew, the reason why Christianity won and succeeded over dozens of other religions at the time was Christians died the best. Christians died the best, and so Christianity did the best. What do I mean? Christians died forgiving their executioner. Christians died forgiving their enemies. Christians, we have history of this. Christians who were being burned at the stake died singing. Christianity won because Christians died the best. How is that possible? I mean, we cower and shrink in fear at the fear of being mocked for our faith. How is it possible that men and women could die singing, forgiving their executioners? That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. This is a two-part message and a little bit next week. Because can I just ask, what, how many of you guys wish you had that kind of boldness? Yeah, yeah, me too. That kind of courage, that kind of taking a stand regardless of um, persecution. There's this incredible phase that comes from that era. Tertullian, Tertullian was one of the church fathers. Read some of his stuff. It's pretty phenomenal. Uh, uh, he, 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 he reportedly said this in face of, of face of death. Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. And then he said this, Semen esignusit Christianorum, which is the seed is the blood of Christians. The more you kill us, the more this sucker is going to grow and expand. Go ahead. Come on. I'll say it again. Do you wish you had that kind of boldness? I do. Where do they come from? Well, it's, it's right here, actually, in this passage. And we're going we're gonna to look at it in a moment. Um, I, I realized as I was preparing this message, that persecution is hard to talk about here in America. Why? You go check out websites like Voice of the Martyrs, and you see how Christians all over the world are being persecuted. And I just kind of look at the persecution that we endure here in this country. I'm like, hmm, anybody else know what I'm talking about? You know, yeah, I, I mean, there are people who are being killed. There are people who's, who, who, whose family members are being killed for their faith. There are people whose houses are being burned down. Having said that, I don't want to minimize the painful part of persecution and rejection we face as Christians in this country. I don't want to say just because we're not being killed for our faith that it's minimized. Because the reality is there are people in our church today who've been disowned by their family members because they chose Jesus. Some of you guys have heard Arva and Jeremy's testimony. There's this family simple request for them was to go through this one ceremonial route in their religion where they knelt and bowed. Arva refused to do that. And as a result, they were disowned by their family. That's painful. 
There are some of you who have been, uh, not been promoted or passed over for promotion, even been fired because of your integrity at workplaces. I know people in our church who have experienced that. And then there are those of you who've been not just rejected. See, rejection is easy to handle sometimes because when you're rejected for your faith, at least you know they're taking you seriously. What's hard is when you're mocked. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Because when you're mocked, they're just treating you with disdain. They're just going... And yet there are those of us in our church who've been mocked for our faith in this country. Why is all of this critical as we talk about the book of Acts of missional living? Here it is. You ready? We've been talking a lot about missional living and what it means to be a witness for Christ. And here in this text, we come to grips with something that I think is going to be hard for some of us to embrace. Not just because here, but, but, but here, and that is this. According to the Apostle Paul and throughout Scripture, Jesus even said this to uh, 2 Timothy 3.12. It says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus, will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a missional life, witness for Jesus, life of taking a stand for Christ, will be rejected, you'll be misunderstood, you'll be marginalized, you'll be ostracized, people will think you're a freak, people will think you're weird, people will not want to associate with you. Jesus, John 15, 20, remember the words I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. It's a promise. But here's the other part of that. It's not just a promise. It's proof. Your life of being ostracized, persecuted, marginalized, opposed, made fun of is not just a promise. It's it's proof that you are walking in the way of Jesus. It's proof that you are walking in the way, which brings us to a very, very uncomfortable proposition, and that is this. If our lives are devoid of persecution, opposition, rejection, misunderstanding, if our lives are devoid of discomfort and we're very comfortable, it could be one of three things. One, our lives are absolutely no different than the surrounding culture around us. There is absolutely no distinguishable difference between our lives and those around us. As a result, why would we be persecuted? Our lives are very comfortable. For some of us, it could also be this uncomfortable proposition that we are cowards and we are secretive about our faith commitment to Jesus and will not ever open our mouths to tell someone about who Christ is. And then for some of us, and we'll talk about this, it may be because the entirety of our lives is surrounded with Christians doing Christian things and zero interaction with the unbelieving world. And therefore, why would we be understood? Why would we be misunderstood, ostracized, rejected, persecuted? Everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. We see it happening in our text today. We're going to see it throughout the book of Acts. Now, before I go, I just want to stop here and ask you guys. You need to ask, how am I doing? How are you doing? Is your life very comfortable? Zero persecution, zero opposition, zero interaction that would have you say, I'm taking a stand for Jesus. Let's unpack this a little bit. Verse 12. Let's go back and look at this passage. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Verse 13, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Uh, let, me, let me just, this is kind of nuanced, so, so, so stay with me here, okay, about persecution and, and, and being rejected for our faith. The early church that was spirit-filled and in which God's presence was there was intimidating and unnerving to some people, Okay. It says no one else dared to join them. There was an intimidation and unnerving sense to them. Now, it might be because, they, you know, two people dropped dead. And so people go, I don't want to be a part of that, okay? 
But watch this. Look at the next verse. That this didn't mean that they didn't see fruit in the ministry. Because it says that more and more people, though, believed in the Lord and were added to their numbers. Check this out. Let me put it this way. The presence of God and the Spirit of God working in them was both attractive and repellent. The presence of God, the work of God amongst them was both a turn on to the unbelieving world as well as a turn off. Does that make sense? You with me? So watch this, watch. So, so here's what happens. The Spirit of God is at work in this church. The Spirit of God is working in a powerful way. And there are two paradoxes of responses to God at work. On one hand, people are opposed. On one hand, people do persecution. On one hand, people are... Well, they're just turned off. But on the other hand, there's an attractiveness. On the other hand, there's beauty. On the other hand, there's a drawn to who they are and what they're doing. Does that make sense? This is very important because when we think of persecution, when we think of staying for Jesus, immediately Christians always go, the negative responses. You're rejected, you're ridiculed, so on and so forth. But Bible says when your life is missionally for Christ and God is at work, you will drop both responses. There'll be some who'll ridicule you. There'll be some who'll mock you. There's some who'll reject you. And then there'll be those who'll be drawn. There'll be those who'll be interested. There'll be those who are curious. We see this happening throughout the book of Acts. It happened once before. Before we get here, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 12. Let me put it up there. This is right after the Pentecost, outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some of them, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Again, two sort of paradoxical responses. On one hand, people are saying, I'm drawn, I'm interested, I'm perplexed, I'm amazed. What is God doing? I want more information. What does this mean? And other hand, there are those who say they're drunk and they're being mocked. The Spirit of God working, when it stirs the people's hearts, two responses, drawn, attraction, want more. Secondly, mocking, rejection, ridicule, hostility. Um, We're going to look at sort of this in a corporate individual sense. I got to tell you, uh, this is very encouraging to me. This paradoxical nature, especially when we think about the Spirit-filled church. There was a time when our church had just started. And for the first two years, we would see people come and leave. We would see people come and leave. Sometimes leaders would come and leave. Sometimes leaders wouldn't stay. And it was a really challenging time for me personally to go, God, what are we doing wrong? (laughs) What are the things that we should be doing more if we're going to be a spirit-filled church? And then I came across this passage. I'm going to put it up there. Luke chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is Apostle John talking about Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. With many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what my ministry will do. Some will be drawn, others will reject it. Some will receive the invitation of Jesus, others will walk away. The work of Jesus and the work of the Spirit of God in the midst of you will be that there will be these two paradoxical responses. And this was encouraging to me because uh, an older mentor of mine, as I was meditating on this passage, said this. He said, Peter, one of the signs of a healthy church, this is important, will be that God will take you through seasons of pruning. He said, one of the healthier signs is that God will take you through seasons of pruning. In other words, there will be times when there will be people who will drop out, while at the same time, there are seasons of deep maturity and deep growth. It's not necessarily because you're doing things wrong. It may be that the Spirit of God is powerfully at work. Okay, can I just share something? As I've been going through this book of Acts series, this has been one of my prayers. I've been praying, God, do this work of winnowing. Do this work of pruning. I'm encouraged because when Jesus preached the message of what it means to follow him, a group gathered of thousands and then it dwindled down to 12. And Jesus looks at the 12 and says, you don't want to leave too, do you? As a friend of mine likes to say, the snackers that they decided that they would have nothing to do with the Christian message and left. And the ones that were truly serious stayed. And 
to be honest with you, as a pastor this morning, I, I, I've been wrestling with this whole thing because who doesn't want to see big crowds? Who doesn't want to see large church? Who doesn't want to see people grow? And yet, Scripture, the work of God and the Spirit of God, there'll be some who will be repelled and walk away, and there's others who will be drawn. Okay, so what does this mean for you individually and me individually? What does this mean for us in terms of our life? What does this mean in terms of our commitment to Jesus? How is it that there will be both responses on one hand of those who will be drawn, who will be attracted by the beauty and by the power of the Spirit of God working in our lives? At the same time, there will be those who will be opposed, who will reject us, who will misunderstand us. I want to take you a very familiar passage of how this applies to us individually. But before we do that, I want to give you a bit of a context. The passage that I'm going to look at is from 2 Peter or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Here's the context of Peter. We've, we've hit this passage before, but I want to give you the context of this passage, and then we're going to look at the verse again, okay? 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written by Apostle Peter, okay? And I'm, I'm really fascinated this week as I studied this by the connection between the book of Peter and the book of Acts, because here's what happens. The church that Peter is writing to most likely were people that were probably saved at the day of Pentecost, Okay? and went to their various places. So there are these churches all over Asia Minor that Peter is writing to. What is the context of Peter's audience? Here it is. He's writing anywhere between 50 and 60 AD, and the emperor's name in Rome is Nero. Nero. Nero was one of these guys, early Roman emperors who came, who wanted to wipe wipe out Christianity. And and there's horror stories of what life was like. It wasn't state-sponsored persecution yet, but there was severe persecution. Here's what Christians were going through. They were living in a context in which it was multicultural, multiracial, very diverse. It was pluralistic. And so the name of the game during that time was tolerance. Don't say that your faith is only faith. That's, That's a way to God. We all need to respect each other's beliefs, so on and so forth. And in this context, Christians were going through major suffering. Why? Because they were being persecuted for their faith. Here's why they were being persecuted for their faith. One, when they became Christians, their lives completely changed morally. They stopped drinking too much. They stopped eating too much. You find this in 1 Peter chapter 2. They stopped sleeping around with their girlfriends or living boyfriends. They stopped worshiping the gods and idols of their city, of their nation. So relationally, people that used to hang with these former, or former unbelievers, once they became Christians, they lost their friends. And so they were being ostracized and marginalized by his friends, by their family, and by the people that knew them. Anybody relate? What it's like? Okay. Here's the other thing that was going on too. And that's why it was, it, it, it was on a much wider scale. We're talking about a time in which worship of gods and goddesses happened at the local level, national level, everywhere. So nationally. There were these gods and goddesses that people worshipped. And worshipping these gods and goddesses was akin to us today, waving our flag or saying our Pledge of Allegiance. So when Christians came along and said, we worship Jesus and Jesus Christ only. He is our God. He is our King. They were looked upon as being unpatriotic. And so were persecuted. Cities. Cities also had gods and goddesses that they worshipped. And they held these city-wide events when they gathered together to worship these gods because it was sort of community bonding time, right? So they had these city-wide events where they worshipped these gods and goddesses and invited everybody, of course. And Christians said, we will now bow down to this god, to this goddess of this city. And so they were looked upon as being bad neighbors, bad citizens. Work. Oftentimes the trade that you were in and the trade guilds, akin to unions today, also had within their sort of gatherings and meetings, uh, worship services, certain gods and goddesses. Sometimes to ask these gods and goddesses to bless their trade, so on and so forth. And so when Christians refused to participate as workers in these, they were deemed upon as being unprofessional or demoted or fired for their jobs. And families. Families also had these gods and goddesses that they worship, right? And so what, what happened when Christians became, uh, when Christians became believers was that they would go to these family gatherings and the family would say, okay, we're going to now worship and offer sacrifice to this god or this goddess. And Christians would say, you guys can do that. Me and my children and our family will not participate in that. And so as a result, they were often ostracized and sometimes disowned by their family members. Not unlike the time that we live in today, is it? So here's what Christians were tempted to do because they were being persecuted for their faith. Some people decided 
that they were just going to take on a stance of, we're going to just be against the culture. We're just going to separate. We're just going to be completely separated from the culture. We're not going to associate. And take on a posture of defensiveness. And stood from a distance just pointing. Some Christians, they decided that they, wanted to get, they just wanted to give in. It's like the college students who get just hammered by their philosophy professor for believing in the Bible. And day after day, week after week, and towards the end of the year, like, you know what? I just don't even know anymore. And Christians were tempted to abandon their faith and saying, I just. And there were others who said, you know what? What's the big deal about going and doing a little of that? What's the big deal about going and participating in a little of that? You know, it doesn't really, it doesn't really define my commitment, my loyalty to Christ. So therefore, they live this life of one foot in their world and one foot. Does this sound familiar at all? In that context, Peter writes this to them. This is so powerful. There's so much inside here. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Here is what Peter is saying. Let's do a little word study. The word there, aliens and strangers. That's a Greek word, one Greek word. And in one sense, it means aliens and strangers. Now, listen to what Paul, uh, Peter is saying. He's writing to people. He's writing to Greeks who are living in Greek cities. He's writing to Romans who are living in Roman cities. He's writing to people who have been in the town and community for generations. And yet he says to them, when you become a Christian, you're a foreigner. You're an alien. When you become a Christian, in a profound sense, you become distinctly different from the culture around you, no matter who you are. Why? We've been studying throughout the book of Acts that what it means to become a Christian is to repent from this generation to embrace another generation. Remember Acts 2? Becoming a Christian is not just mentally adhering to a set of beliefs and doctrines, but it's about embracing an entirely different set of values, worldview. Entirely different way of looking at the world around us. Becoming a Christian is not just adhering and saying yes to a set of doctrinal beliefs, but it's about looking at our lives in every way. How we do our, how we handle our money, our sexuality, our relationships, our careers, our works, every single part of our being, looking at a different lens that says, I belong to another king in another kingdom. And why is it that it results in a countercultural life? We've been talking throughout this. Look at the king in this kingdom. This king Jesus in the kingdom wins salvation via losing. He comes to power via being weak. Even death on a cross. And he becomes wealthy if you're giving it all away. Jesus Christ comes and says, the last will be first. Jesus Christ comes and says, it is those who mourn who will be comforted. He comes and introduces an entirely different countercultural, upside-down view of life. And he says, anyone that enters this kingdom doesn't just agree to a set of beliefs, but embraces that same way of life. So what does it mean for us? It means that if you are radically generous, eye-popping generous with your resources and your possessions in this current economy when everyone says, I got to be secure, and you radically give your resources away, people will take notice. Not only that, but they'll think you're weird. In this current situation in our workplaces where cutthroat competition and one-upmanship and, and whoever, whoever is the strongest survive, if you're in a position of power and you use your power to promote not yourself but others, people will challenge and question your motives. If in our culture where sexuality and sex is idolized to a godlike status, and you not only embrace life of sexual purity, but it affects everything about you in terms of how you go about relationships and romance, people will think you're a loser. I don't know. Is that the culture you live in? It's the world I live in. 
Here's what this means. That means if we are never opposed, never persecuted, never marginalized, never, ever, never, ever rejected for our faith, our lives are no radically different than the world around us. How are you doing? How am I doing? Could it be that the reason why persecution is a foreign concept to us is because we're just as selfish, just as grumpy, just as materialistic, just as uncommitted in terms of our life of purity as the world around us? Could it be that our lives are no more, no more shining examples of godliness, justice, peace, love, mercy, and purity? How are you doing? How am I doing? And Peter's, Peter's encouragement to us is this. When you live the way of Christ, don't be surprised when people go, what's wrong with you? Don't be surprised when you're ostracized. Don't be surprised when you're rejected. Don't be surprised when you're misunderstood. Don't sit there and go, what's wrong with me? There's nothing wrong with you. He says, expect it. He says, embrace it. He says, count on it. Count on it. Count on it. The inner logic of their worldview is totally different from the inner logic of your worldview. So they'll think you're different. They'll think you're weird. Sometimes they'll think you're arrogant. How are we doing? It's been a while since we've talked. How are we doing? How does this resonate with some of you out there? What's going through your mind? Not all at once now. I think of a friend of mine who struggles with many things in life and she's not a Christian. And I'm realizing now that my best friend and I who are Christians, we always will say, let me pray for you. But we never say it to her because Hmm. she will... She will make fun of you. I have been there. I have been there. Do you hear what she said? I have been there. They're friends, best friends, someone who struggles. And the thing inside of us says, that says that we want to say, I want to pray for you. But we don't. Why? Because if we say, I want to pray for you, they go, what? Anybody else? That's good. Did you guys hear that? Oh, that's good. That's good. Compartmentalization and saying, well, I might not be sexually pure, but at least I'm a good witness at work or vice versa. Verse 20, and I just noticed this this week. It says, but during the night, an angel of the Lord said, go to the temple and take your stand. Tell the people everything there is to say about this life. And NIV says the message is this new life. Here's the reason why, and I just want to kind of nail this and then move on. Here's the reason why that verse struck out to me for two reasons we'll get to it. One is that the the angel of the Lord, this new movement that people had a hard time describing, like what is this movement called? And in verse chapter 11, we see it, Christianity for the first time, but a little bit later it's called the way. The angel didn't even also know what to call this. He tells the disciples, go and tell the people about this life. Why? Because what the angel is telling the apostles and the rest of the Christians is the essence of what it is that you are declaring is about a way to live. Isn't that awesome? Christianity, go and tell us about this. Christianity is a way of life. And the apostles and disciples were frankly and simply just living differently. They were just living differently in regards to their values, their worldviews, who they were, what they thought. And it's one of the reasons why it was a magnet attraction as well as a source of persecution. Their lives were so radically different, so noticeably different, so distinctly different that the angel has nothing else but to say, tell them about this way of living, way of life. That's what you and I are about Way of life. 
way of living that the world notices and says, aha, but, but. The angel also says, go and what? Tell. Go and tell about this way of life. Why? We live in a culture where fear is an idol. And every single person is doing deeds of good. That Christians in the name of, I don't want to be that Christian that's always talking about Jesus, have neglected the angels go and tell. 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 There is a telling that needs to take place. We live in a culture in which if we are never rejected, never persecuted for our faith, it's because we are secretive, embarrassed about our faith commitment to Jesus. We live in a culture where we are pushed back by the culture and saying, keep your faith private, keep your mouth shut. As long as you do that, we'll be all right. But as soon as you start taking that out into the public arena and start talking about Jesus, we're not cool. And so the thing that I've seen is a lot of Christians opt for where I'm just going to do deeds of good. What about telling? What about talking? Well, no, that's for other people. What about in the angel that says, it's not either or, it's us. Say it with me, both and. At some point, you're going to have to tell. Open your mouth and talk about Jesus. I personally think this is a part that a lot of us struggle in our church. I think, you know, I mean, when's the last time Angelina Jolie adopted another baby, right? We live in a culture, celebrities doing deeds of good, and we're like, wow, that's great. Let's do deeds of good. But God forbid if a Christian takes their stand and boldly talks about Jesus and their faith commitment to Jesus. Keep that thing private, not in the public. Could it be that some of us have even missed opportunities this past week when there was an opportunity to tell, we kept our mouth shut, when there was an opportunity to say, can I pray, pray, pray for you because of fear? This is an embarrassing story, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and share this, okay, because I, I want to I have you ease sort of. So, so here I was, a Christian, fired up Christian college student, right? And somebody challenged me and said, you need to tell people that Jesus loves them. And I was scared to death, the whole thing, right? So I thought, I, con- I concocted a way. I said, what's a good way to tell people that Jesus loves them without me actually having to, you know, experience rejection, fear, so on and so forth? So here's the plan I came up with, right? I was going to Purdue University, about 38,000 people, students. I said, I'm going to take my phone directory. I'm going to call every single number and just say, Jesus loves you, and just hang up on them. (laughs) I was afraid to talk about this because I was afraid that I might give some people ideas. So please take this into context. So I shared it with a friend. You don't need friends like this. Who thought it was a brilliant idea? It's like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. I think I'm going to do that too. And he happened to be my roommate, right? So here's what we did. I'm not even exaggerating. I'm not even exaggerating. Sometimes this is not even exaggeration. So that day, we went back to our dorm room, took out the directory, started with A, opened the directory, right? 24452, whatever. Dialed the number, first one. Hello? Hello? Jesus loves you. My roommate and I are like, yeah, we did it. <laughs> we called about 100 people that day, okay? And the responses were anywhere from, this is actually, this is kind of interesting. It's right, and some, some people said, what? Thank you. I needed to hear that. To you mother. My friend and I, after calling 100 names, looked at each other. And something, maybe it was the Holy Spirit, just kind of dawned on us. We said, maybe it's not the best way to tell people. <laughs> you think? Here's the principle that I learned, and I just want to share this real quick and move on. It's a lot easier to tell people about Jesus when you know who they are. 
See, I think the big thing about when I talk about the telling and persecution and all that stuff, immediately our defenses go up because we're thinking in the context of people we don't know, right? Strangers on a subway, at a bus stop, at a coffee shop. It's the whole, Jesus loves you, you know? When you're in the context of a relationship, here's the reason why. You would be amazed how much more open they are when you actually know them and they know you. When they know that you don't have an agenda. You're not looking to make them a project. A relationship in the context makes them incredibly open. You'd be amazed at how open people are willing to talk about God and spirituality in the context of a relationship. Here's another thing, too, that I noticed in the context of a relationship. It's a lot easier to know where the itch is. So you can scratch it. What do I mean? If you don't know them, you have no idea where they're at in their spiritual journey and you're going up to them with Romans Road and spiritual laws and they're going, I have never even read the Bible in my life. What are you talking about? In the context of a relationship, the telling becomes more concrete, tangible because you know what the questions are that they're asking and you can address those. Let me give you an example. I love talking to my hairdresser, a person that cuts my hair, Okay. She cuts my hair. I, I, I love talking. Elizabeth is her name. Elizabeth is Filipino. She grew up going to Catholic church. Her picture of church is one of, one of rules, regulations, is one of God is distant, is one of I don't feel. It's, it's, it's completely entrenched in that. It took me about five months for me to realize that the question that Elizabeth is asking is this. Check this out. She thinks that Christianity is like all other religions of the world. That it's about doing good. It's about moral goodness. It's about you doing what you need. And so here's, after five months, I basically said this simple thing to her. They opened up a can of worms. I said to her, I said, Elizabeth, it appears to me that you think Christianity, she's going to my hair. It appears to me that, you know, I'm looking at her. It appears to me that you think that Christianity is like all other religions. You missed that spot right there. Uh, all other religions. But here's what I know about Christianity. Elizabeth, all the other religions of the world operate on principle of do, D-O. All the other religions say you do good works, you do moral deeds, and you give it to God, he accepts you. Christianity operates on the principle of done, D-O-N-E. Jesus Christ, as he came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, and it's by accepting that life and death that we can enjoy relationship with God. It appears to me that you think Christianity is like all other religions. It's not. And she thought, she said, oh, Let's talk about that some more next time. When the Bible says go tell, don't immediately think in terms of cold, turkey, wood. it's about relationship in the context of the relationship. I need to move on. I need to move on. Let's see the balance though. Peter says, persecution and opposition is just one facet of how the world will respond to us if we're kingdom-loving, missional lives. There's another side to this dynamic. There'll be rejection, but also respect. Can you put that verse up again, please? There'll be something so beautiful and so attractive about your way of life that although there will be some hostility, there will also be drawn and changed. When Peter uses that word again, strangers, aliens and strangers in the world, in 1 Peter chapter 2, here's the other part of that verse and that word that you need to realize. The technical meaning of that word, aliens and strangers, was that it wasn't talking about somebody who was a foreigner that was kind of coming as a tourist. Here for a few days, here for a few weeks, and gone. What the word that Peter used, the technical Greek word Peter used, were people who came as a foreigner but settled in that community, settled in that city, settled in that nation. And here's the unbelievable balance that Peter is saying. He's saying, when you as a Christian, when you as a Christian come, when you as a Christian come and you don't withdraw, you don't attack, hostile, you, when you come as a Christian and there's reminders of Jeremiah 29, when you settle down, when you make this your community, when you settle down, and, 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 and when Peter says resident alien, he's not just talking about a physical location, he's talking about a mindset. He's saying when you engage and not withdraw, when you're intentionally coming close to the people that are around you, when you're actually building relationships, when you're in their lives and they're in your life. When you live as a resident alien, not someone who's just coming and passing along, here for a few weeks and gone, when you actually settle in, when you build relationships, when you dig in, what is the response of the world? Look at what he says. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, expect it. They're going to come and say, what's wrong with you? They'll vilify you. They'll reject you. They'll ridicule you. But, but they will see your good deeds and glorify God glorify your father reminders of Jesus in Matthew chapter 15 which is he says when you are salt and light in your world 
Men will see the good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Here's the beautiful balance that Peter is challenging us to when we're talking about missional living. He says, when you are engaging the culture, when you are living lives of interaction with the people around you, when you do that, there will be some sense in which people will say, what's wrong with you? Reject you, persecute you. They have to. The inner logic of their worldview is totally different from the inner logic of your worldview. They can't understand you. So don't be surprised. Don't freak out. Expect it. But the paradoxical, there'll be others who'll be drawn. There'll be others who'll be attracted. There'll be others who'll say, what does that mean? Tell me more. Tell me more. Who is this Jesus? That's made such a difference in your life. Who is this Jesus? When you live your life as resident aliens, you don't withdraw from your world and your surroundings. You don't live your entire life in Christian ghettos doing Christian things, but you engage and you give your life. You pour out your life in sacrificial service. And good deeds, by the way, good deeds in the New Testament, every time it appears, it's not just moral good. It's not just being good, but it's doing good. It's engagement. It's involvement. When you do that, Men will glorify God. Men will see Christ in you and in me. Um, Here's some questions, reflection questions. And I want to end with how it is that you and I go about living this life with such boldness. Here's some questions, you guys. In what areas of my life am I failing to represent Christ and his kingdom? In what areas of my life am I failing to represent Christ and his kingdom? Second question. Are people noticing a recognizable difference about my life in speech, in character, in lifestyle, such that people have taken notice? I, 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 wrote this, uh, I, I, I read this article. It's, it's a CNN little piece about Barack Obama who talked about his religious transformation And he wrote on here, this was actually a piece from National Prayer Breakfast when he spoke. And here's what he said, part of, he said, I didn't become a Christian until many years later when I moved to the south side of Chicago after college. Me becoming a Christian didn't happen because of indoctrination or a sudden revelation, but because I spent month after month working with church folks who simply wanted to help neighbors who are down on their luck, no matter what they look like or where they came from or who they prayed to. It was on those streets and those neighbors that I first heard God's spirit beckon me. It was there that I felt called to a higher purpose, his purpose. And then I read responses to this, right? And there was this one non-Christian who wrote, and I thought, he nailed it. Listen to what he said. He said, yeah, that's a nice story about church folks, but I don't buy it for a minute. He said, the reason Barack is great and grounded man is because his mother had the common sense to stay away from organized religion, and his grandparents and father decided to non-practice. And then he says, out of the thousands of churchgoers out there, I have yet to find one that truly talks the talk and walks the walk. Is there anything distinctly different about us? Third question. Do I have any significant relationships with those outside the Christian faith? Are you living disengaged lives with the world? And lastly, have there been missed opportunities to tell this past week? To tell this past week. As a prelude to next week, I want to end sharing with you the verse that to me was like the most powerful in terms of where we get this courage. And uh, Andy, you can come on out or whoever's playing. I want you to go back to verse 30. I want to go back to verse 30 because I think here is the key that unlocks where our courage comes from, where, where our boldness comes from. And I wanted to end with this, you guys, instead of giving you a long list of saying, so if you do this, you do this. I want to give you, I want to give you a vision and a glimpse. Verse 30, Acts 530. It says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted Jesus to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. And verse 32, we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Okay, Holy, I need the Holy Spirit's help because I need to be able to explain this well so that you guys can catch this and walk out here. Peter says, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Disciples, incredible boldness, incredible courage, incredible, incredible, unexplainable boldness and courage and love. Why? They say, we have witnessed Christ resurrected. We have witnessed Christ rise from the dead. Furthermore, we have seen him ascend into heaven and exalted at the right hand of God. We have seen him ascend into heaven and exalted at the right hand of God. Boldness, courage, and love. Holy Spirit is a witness to these things also. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He rose from the dead, conquering sin, sin, Satan, and death. Not only that, Holy Spirit has seen the ascended Christ, the exalted Christ. Result, boldness, courage, and love. Peter says, the Holy Spirit is where? Is Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, witness of these things, boldness, courage, and love, disciples, says the Holy Spirit who lives in us witnesses and testifies the risen Christ, rose from the dead, defeated, sustained, and death, ascended Christ, exalted Christ. How does that lead to boldness, courage, and love, the Holy Spirit living inside of us? Here it is. The connection between seeing the ascended, risen, exalted Christ and our lives of boldness and courage is not some zapping process that happens, but it's the result of seeing something. Acts chapter 2, next verse. Follow with me, please. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Can you put that up there, Nate? I need my notes. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Not, not that one. Um. <laughs> towards the end exalted Acts chapter 2 verse 33 exalted to the right hand of God he has received from the father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear Jesus says in other places that the Holy Spirit was not going to be poured out until he went to heaven and so here it is Jesus rises to heaven is ascended is exalted and from the right hand of God he is pouring out the Holy Spirit he is pouring out the Holy Spirit on us and what is that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God Right hand of God pouring out the Holy Spirit. Right hand of God pouring out the Holy Spirit. Connection. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. We have an advocate with the Father, the Bible says. One who speaks in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins. So here it is. What is the connection from seeing the ascended Christ, risen Christ, and witnesses of that, and experiencing a fullness and power of the Holy Spirit that leads to boldness and courage? Stephen, Stephen, Apostle Stephen, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, we see him being stoned to death for his faith in Christ. And as Stephen is being stoned to death, stoned to death, this is what he says in Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Full of the Holy Spirit, he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing where? Right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, do not hold this against them. How such love? How does he have such love, such courage? Here it is. What's happening to Stephen? He looks up and he sees Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God as our advocate, as our defense. And as a result, he is filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that he faces death with courage, with boldness, and with love. Why? 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 When he looks up to heaven, he sees that the heavenly court in heaven is commending him while this earthly court is Condemning him. He looks up to heaven and says, the verdict down here is my life is worthless. But he looks up to heaven and he sees the verdict from his heavenly father that says, you are my beloved. 
Are you following? He looks up to heaven. What does he see? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our advocate, our defense attorney saying, your life is mine. You are precious to me. And him being filled with the Holy Spirit is not some zapping, but him being filled with the Holy Spirit is seeing his life in context of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And as a result, he knows that he is beautiful in God's sight and free from condemnation. He doesn't care about the verdict down here because the ultimate verdict has been given by God who says the only verdict that really matters is already yours. You are mine. You're my beloved. You're uncondemnable. And what's happening to Stephen is he sees up and this truth that he knows intellectually becoming vivid. It's becoming life. It's becoming real. It's electrifying his heart. And he's saying, I could die with courage. I could die with boldness. I could die forgiving my enemies. The Bible says his, angel, his face was like the face of an angel. Such peace, such calm in the face of persecution. Why? He is really, really experiencing, really, really knowing, not just up here, but all of his soul, entire being, who he is and what he is, is in Christ. Does that make any sense? Yes? Oh, man, I was, I'm like, God, I'm stinking it up this morning. I got to save this somehow. The end result of all of this is what? This is the reason why. Listen, Acts chapter 2, I'll pour you the Holy Spirit. Right after Acts chapter 1 at the end, the ascension of Jesus. Hello? Ascension of Jesus, exalted the right hand of God. I'll pour you the Holy Spirit. Radical mission and courage. Why? The disciples are walking around going, I see him. I know who I am. I see him. I know who I am. I see him. I know who I am. He's standing for me. I'm going to stand for Christ. I'm going to stand for Christ. Think of how much more bold you would be if every day of your life you knew, God, I'm beautiful. I'm accepted. I'm in. I'm uncondemnable. I'm yours. Think of how more bold you would be. Do you know why the early disciples were so courageous? Because they couldn't care about what the world said to them. Because their hearts were filled every single day of their lives with what the Heavenly Father was saying about them. And the verdict up there, way more important than verdict down here. And they knew it, they got it, they understood it, and went forth. Do you know why they weren't afraid of death? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. That means that death is not the end. There's life after life after death. There's a resurrection coming, y'all. So go ahead and kill me. Because I'm going to rise again. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Do you know the Heavenly Father stands in heaven looking down at you and the Son of God, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, if you're a child, I don't care if you did nasty, nasty last night. I'm going to say it again. Because standing here today, if you are a child of God, I will tell you, you stand uncondemnable. You are completely and totally accepted in God's eye. And that never changes. And it is when you catch a glimpse of that, a vision of that, that you can walk away with bonus courage and love. To the degree that you and I see the ascended Christ, to the degree that we know our position in Christ, to the degree that we are sure and certain of our identity of who we are in Christ because he has resurrected and ascended, it is to that degree we will be bold. It is to that degree that we will love radically. It is to that degree that we will serve sacrificially. To that degree. How many of y'all need a vision of God this morning? How many of y'all just need to see ascended Christ, exalted, standing at the right hand of God and saying, Father, he's my child. Father, she's my child. Anybody? Boldness. Missional courage. You don't conjure it up. He gives it to you. He gives it to you. Bow your heads. The boldness to stand in the face of opposition, persecution, boldness to radically love, boldness to make a difference, boldness to be involved. 
Boldness to pray for your friends without a fear of backlash. Boldness to open your mouth and tell who Christ is and what he has done. Boldness to do those things. It's not because you learn four simple steps on how to. It becomes possible when you as a child of God can look and see a vision of the exalted ascended Christ standing as your advocate, as your defense attorney and saying, a verdict up here is already done. It's been taken care of once and for all. Do you need Holy Spirit to refresh that in your heart this morning? Do you need the Holy Spirit to remind you that this morning? Do you need the Holy Spirit to convict you of that this morning? Do you need the Holy Spirit to electrify your heart, melt your heart, and to allow that truth to come alive in you this morning? Do you need that? Do you want that? Do you long for that? Then pray. Pray. Right where you are. Pray. And the worship team is going to lead us, and I think the most appropriate song, God, will you be my vision? God, will you be my vision? You, you, you. He is exalted. He is ascended. He is. As we live this week, in the world that you commission and send us to. Give us courage, give us boldness, give us radical sacrificial love that arises deep out of our heart's sight, the vision of you, Jesus. Help us to hear your voice. Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can. Electrify, melt, strengthen our hearts. In the name of the Father, name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, you guys. Be witnesses for him. See you back here next week.